Tell me again about your immune system. I have a shotgun. Maybe we'll talk later. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our new podcast for Scanline Media. I'm Colin Detmar. And I'm Jennifer Uncle. And we have a new, uh, rather short-form podcast we wanted to try out, where we want to talk about the relationships between characters. Um, and so we're calling this podcast Friend Request, because somehow that wasn't taken. Um, and yeah, we're we're going to tackle um, just sort of, probably video games only, but I guess I could see us branching out eventually, um, talking about just the relationships between characters in games, because I feel like... For me personally, character writing is one of the most compelling things in games, and it's very often, you know, kind of by the numbers and, and full of tropes and feather rote, but when it's done well, it's it's really compelling, and it tends to be what makes me have lasting memories of, of games, you know? Pretty much, yeah, to a much bigger extent than gameplay in many respects. Like, I feel like a game can survive having semi-mediocre enjoyment from moment to moment if its characters are strong but if the mechanics are good and i'm having no sort of feeling towards the people i'm with i'm much more inclined to drop it entirely yeah it can it can go either way but certainly it it makes it hard um and i don't think like i think probably to start out all of these relationships we're going to talk about are relationships we think are are like well done and interesting but um Basically, the only thing that we're going to require is that they're going to be, like, notable, right? Like, I have some ones planned that I think are bad relationships. And not just bad, like, unhealthy, bad, like, badly written and executed. But that is part of what makes them interesting. Totally. So, um, I guess I'll start us off. I am, uh, this week, my offering is uh, Link and Zelda from The Legend of Zelda Spirit Tracks. Now, of course... Link and Zelda is a relationship that has appeared in almost every Zelda game. There are a couple where it doesn't, but basically every Zelda game has a Link and a Zelda. Um, the you know the the hero and then you know the princess. Um, and pretty often, I feel like the characterization. I mean, the characterization of Link comes and goes, and that's partially because he's supposed to be sort of a blank slate for the for the character or for the player, to a certain extent. But with the princess, there's no such excuse, and yet she's usually really badly characterized. Um, she's usually little more than just a nice lady who you need to rescue. Um, and Spirit Tracks is one of the games that actually does something more with it. Um, in Spirit Tracks, again, she's the princess, and she you know sees a grave threat to, the, uh, to Hyrule, and she beseeches you to help her solve it. Um, and almost immediately, she gets uh, kind of killed. <laughs> she gets basically her, her her soul is knocked out of her body and she's a ghost. And then they run off with her body. That right? sounds pretty much killed. Yeah. I mean, and, and her, her spirit remains and normally i think that doesn't happen even in this world it's just sort of like you know when you're done you're done um it sort of punched her ghost out i guess is is one way to put it um and so she acts the role of this game's uh navi you know like traveling with you and like it's 
even even in Breath of the Wild, which is a fairly progressive Zelda as far as as far as the the princess herself is concerned, you see so little of her. You see her in flashbacks and stuff, but you don't spend any time with her yourself. And in almost none of these games, do you? Um, you spend a little in Wind Waker with with Tetra before she realizes she's Zelda, and then as soon as she does, oh, guess what? You don't get to spend time with her anymore. Um, and I don't know how remarkable that relation, the relationship between Link and Zelda in Spirit Tracks is sort of in the, in the grand scheme of things, but certainly in the context of that series, um, like she's, she's a little bit, uh, Sundre, she's very assertive and she's kind of demanding of her expectations of Link. She can help out. Like, she is able to possess enemies and, like, scout around for them. And it just, it really feels like a really enjoyable subversion. Because instead of it just being, like, you know, Link off to save the princess. Like, they're still off to save the princess because they're trying to get her body back. But it's sort of, it's almost like, you know, like a, a... I hesitate to say a buddy cop thing, right? But it's like they're they're <laughs> partners in this, and they're working together, and there's some hijinks, and it's a, a game that has some real rough patches. But that relationship is one of the things that makes it uh, special. Yeah, that sounds really appealing. Like I don't know too much about Spirit Tracks, other than I think that it takes place in the same universe as Wind Waker, so mm-hmm. it's still technically Tetra in some ways, but. I really liked that version of Zelda because you're very reliant on that Zelda or Tetra in some cases within that universe. Like mm-hmm. you basically hitch a ride on her pirate ship and she can't, she's basically like, yeah, I won't think twice about getting rid of you if I need to. <laughs> and it's this nice sort of feeling where for once you're kind of, you're kind of relying on her instead of her relying on you 24/7. Mhm. I think that's And uh Yeah, this is uh this is Tetra's descendant, but it is the same same uh timeline and everything. Like that Tetra is mentioned and comes up in this game, but this is, you know, this is a a, a number of years later. Oh, okay. So so yeah, I don't know that there's too much more to it. Um, there'll be more relationships that I have to dissect more deeply um, than that because you know, at the end of the day, it is it is a Zelda game and it is mostly about dungeons and the adventure. And the dynamic between Link and Zelda is enjoyable, but they don't go crazy deep on it. Uh, what uh, is your relationship that you wanted to discuss today? I think you might have a bit more to say about this one. Uh, this is Garius. This is Garrus Vicarian uh, from Mass Effect. He's uh, he's kind of gone through a few. He kind of has an interesting arc to him. Like he starts out as this citadel cop, essentially, basically their version of Space's version of a mall cop, except a bit more serious, and. The bureaucracy isn't really doing much to get in Saren's way because Saren, the big bad of Mass Effect 1 at least, is this special class of hero called a Spectre. So he's basically invincible from any sort of criticism. So when you first meet Garrus, he's basically like, I'm 
I've been doing my best to stay by the book doing this, but I'm going to be abandoning this post for a while, and I'm going to come with you, see what's up. And for the most part, he's kind of wading into waters that he's never really dealt with as someone who's been with CSEC for most of his life. Like, there are times when you're with him that he'll get you into hot water for dismissing the genophage as something always necessary when Rex has a few... Rex, one of the targets of the genophage, or at least his race, has some thoughts about that. Mm -hmm. And... You're kind of getting used to him in this fish-out-of-water sense, almost sort of like you, except he he's a lot more calm and collected when he's around you, more or less, and a lot more vicious when he's actually chasing after someone who, in one case, has eluded him for years as part of CSEC, but CSEC couldn't let him do anything because all of the red tape involved. And there's something about that life that kind of clings to him throughout the rest of the game. This this breaking through the restrictions that he had as an officer, because by the time you meet him in Mass Effect 2, he's been away from CSEC for years and years, and he's he's become something of a more rebellious soul. He He's more or less a mercenary for... Well, he's like... A space Batman, <laughs> in some sort of ways. Yeah, vigilante. Yeah, vigilante. And when you meet him, then he's he's kind of different in person. Like he he starts cracking jokes a whole lot more. He's he's more suave, or and also kind of resting with a semi temper over things like getting his face half his face burned off by an ambush that killed his entire team. So there's a bit more grizzled darkness to him, but at the same time, he's... He's very, very happy to see you. Like, there's something about your presence that kind of brings him... It's kind of like a calming agent. Sort of like you were you grounded him within the first Mass Effect. And it kind of carries over these three games in a way that you really end up getting close to him in a lifelong buddy way and you get the sense that he doesn't really want to ever leave your side if necessary and you start to feel somewhat the same at least i did yeah so it's this really nice sort of he does have this sort of he has this sort of depth to him that three games kind of allow you to have in ways that a single solitary story wouldn't provide yeah, I think, um, I don't know, he's got this interesting arc where it feels like he's kind of, I mean, especially especially in 2, I feel like it's the most notable, where he seems really, he's following in Shepard's footsteps, right? And not, like, exactly, but, like, I mean, he even says, like, oh, you know, like, when I was, when I was, like, oh, I need to, to take the fight to these, these, you know, uh, mercenary groups, it's like, well, I gotta do what you did, I gotta form a group, and I gotta, you know, get my squad together. Um, and I feel like he, I don't know. I didn't play too much of Mass Effect 3. Um, I wasn't a, I wasn't a big fan. Um, 
it seems like his his character arc from one to two is like going from being like like the guy who's like I don't know if this like the C sec and you know the as you say like the um the red tape and the bureaucracy of of law enforcement is really the way I wanna I wanna do this. Um, and then you move on to Mass Effect two, and he's fully like, no, I'm just gonna you know. I'm going to you know, use my own skills and, and get people on my side and do what I think is right and, you know, fuck everything else. Um, and, you know, he's trying to do good, but he's pre- he's fairly cavalier about it, I think is fair to say. Mm-hmm. When he used um, to be kind of... He used to get pretty upset in one when you would be a little bit rougher with people, but in two, he's more... Mm-hmm. If it gets the job done, then yeah. Yeah. And then... Like in three, I don't feel like I mean I didn't play all the way through, but I I you know I I did some reading and also you know I just played it. Um, and it feels like his arc is less. It, it he doesn't go too much further after two. I I expected him to become a specter in three is where I thought that was sort of the natural conclusion of his arc. Um, and sort of being like, oh sure, Shepard, I'll help you as an equal, right? Um, not to say that he isn't an equal, but you know, in his own mind, he feels like he's chasing Shepard's shadow, so. Um, and I think that's not so much how it goes for him. It just seems like he kind of mellows out a little more, but is still basically the same dude. Um, yeah. The thing about him in three is he's faced with the, he's faced with the incoming destruction of the galaxy and he doesn't really know how to take it that well, other than just get pretty sentimental with you. Like, there's one scene in particular where you go back to the Citadel, or at least some sort of base. I don't know if it's exactly the Citadel, but you are basically throwing beer cans in the air with him and shooting them with a sniper rifle and just cracking jokes about the old days. And Hmm. that's a lot of his... That's a lot of where he is in 3, like, just coming to him for comfort and reminiscence while things are being blown up around you yeah he's pretty he's pretty he and tali are both pretty since they're in every single mass effect they're pretty nostalgic well the first three mass effects they're pretty nostalgic characters um and that's you know i i personally feel like it works better for tali maybe we'll talk about that on another episode but um i don't know i think it's the dynamic between between garris and shepherd is really neat i mean like obviously you can romance him and that that takes things down a different way if you are playing a female shepherd but um it's just neat to have this character that's kind of not a foil but he does he he does a really good job of putting like the way you act in context cuz like i mean like when i went to go get him in 2 um you know to go recruit him I was like, dude, like, are you out of your mind? You're like, wait, like, waging single-handed war on three mercenary groups <laughs> with your suit of armor and a sniper rifle. And it's like, actually, that's not that different from what I do, huh? <laughs> that's yeah. really pretty similar. Um, so I feel like he does a really good job of of putting in context, just sort of. I don't know if I would say the absurdity because that suggests a sort of comedy, but just sort of like the the way you behave in those games generally your your modus operandi is pretty yeah there's intense yeah there there's some squad mechanics to it but it's mostly just you going from place to place and eradicating everything nearby 
and it's the closest I feel like the game comes to being like, you know, like the the there's a moment in if I can make a call to Max Payne two, where um you enter an area where you are expected. You have a you have a friend who is upstairs who is expecting you to come. And he gets on over the intercom, and he's like, ah, guess who's here? It's Max Payne. He has the highest body count in New York Police Department history. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> oh, right, because <laughs> I'm just like a fucking blender on legs. Yeah. It's like, And I feel like it's the closest Mass Effect ever comes to sort of acknowledging that, like, Shepard's insanely violent. And I don't think that's Shepard's, like, it doesn't, you know, depending on how you play Shepard, but generally that's not like, like, Shepard will shoot you for criticizing his hat or her hat. But, um, but boy, things get bloody real fast, you know, as they do in most video games. But, but often games don't ever take the time to be, to shine a spotlight on it. And I feel like the, the Garrus relationship kind of does. Yeah. He's... He's very good for self-reflection in many aspects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like the like the best thing with him, though, and the thing that, like, even though he wasn't, like, I know he was your favorite, and, and you know that he was not mine, though I still liked him. Um, but one of the things I always appreciated about him was he's just sort of like, uh, he's a bellwether, right? Like, he has his personal stuff that he needs to deal with, you know, like anybody else, he has loyalty missions where he's like, oh, I've got this thing that I'd love your help taking care of, right? But, like, Garrus is always down for whatever you need him for. Garrus always has your back. He's really reliable and just, you know, like, a solid friend and ally in a way that is really, uh... I don't know, it, it might be exaggerating to call him, like, the backbone of your party, but he kind of is, you know? Yeah, I can't think of a single mission where I left him behind if I didn't have to. And there's also not a single mission where that I played, I didn't play all of three, where I made a choice and Garrus was like, well, you need to knock it the fuck off or I'm walking away or something, right? Like, there was no mission where... There are missions where he's like, hmm, I don't know if that's what I would do, but you're the boss, you know? And he's just sort of always on board with your leadership in a way that you have to appreciate. For sure especially in a game where people will flip out. Like, some of the conflicts that came up in 2 were a little ridiculous. <laughs> but. Yeah. All right, yeah, I guess that's probably it for our, our first episode. Um, we're still, obviously, working on the format, working on our, our flow here, but um, hopefully many more of these to come, just short short little bites here. Um if you liked this, you can go to scanlandmedia.com. You can find other podcasts we do, also articles and editorials that we write. And if you want to help us cover more stuff, you could go to patreon.com slash scanlandmedia. Any money that you contribute there will help us get new equipment and new software so that we can cover more things. If you want to send in your uh, ideas for future episodes, future relationships that we should discuss... Uh, you can find me on Twitter at at 6264. That's written out as words. Um, Jen, you want to do your Twitter? Yeah, I'm on Twitter as at JBU3. I also want to give, give a big thank you to Krista Lee for use of her track Hearts Burning Bright from Welcome to the Fantasy Zone. That album you can find on Bandcamp at, at o4pup.bandcamp.com. 
yeah, really grateful for for her to lending the rights to the to that music. Big fan of that album, and uh, really excited that we can use it to to sort of set the tone for this podcast. Indeed. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next episode. Later.